Jesus, we thank you so much for the Holy Spirit that brings light into the Word of God. And as we read the Word, your Spirit can just reveal things to us about our own hearts and lives that no man could know, that we couldn't even know without your Spirit illuminating it for us. God, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to each one of us and, and pour it out on us. Give us, uh, Lord, just the access to you that's already been granted to us. I pray you would give us an understanding of the access we have, that as we come to you as our Father, that we would trust you as a Father, that you're not withholding anything from us, but everything of yours belongs to us, that you freely give to all who ask. So, Lord, I pray that your word right now would be to us the, the air that we breathe, the, the food that we eat. Lord, your word would just be a treasure in our hearts and for our souls. It would be all that we need. In your name we pray. Amen. Today's Bible study is called Fluffy the Lamb. And we're going to find out why in just a little while. But, I, but as you think of Fluffy the Lamb, I want you to think of a really cute lamb. Have you ever seen an ugly lamb? I haven't. They're all cute. And then just think of the cutest, fluffiest lamb, and we'll get to him in a little while. But I want him to just dance around in your head right now. Just maybe he'll just paw at one of your legs like, oh, I want to play. Or just, just fall in love with him, will you? Spend a few minutes falling in love with him. We'll get back to him in a little while. We're going to actually start in Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to read to you a verse in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. It says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood is no remission. No remission. So blood... Blood represents life in the Bible. It's funny, 60,000 miles of blood vessels link every living cell in the body. The heart pumps five quarts of blood through the body every 23 seconds. Since blood represents life, it's literally flowing through you as your life, the Jews were never allowed to drink blood or use it in any foods. So vampires, totally against the law. All right, just in case you were wondering. Every Jewish housewife would check her meat to make sure that, the, that no blood remained. And the rule was unconditional. You did not eat blood, uh, uh, food, you did not eat the blood, for it contained the life of that animal. And no Jew would ever digest blood. So it, it was always actually poured out as an offering to God as well this life being poured out. So it, and it's been like that since the beginning. So we're going to today, we're going to look at the first ever shedding of blood, the first ever animal that was killed, the first animal sacrifice. We're also going to find the first blood transfusion. We're going to see that in a little while. The first life taken by sin and the first gracious covering of sin, undeserved, unearned covering of sin. So look at Genesis chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 21. And it says, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword 
which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So we'll start right there at the beginning. He said, also Adam, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin. There's this pastor and funny guy named Gail Irwin, and he called these the first ever lambskin seat covers. I like that. God understands their situation. He has already confronted their sin, which we studied in the last few weeks. He, and he doesn't require of them a penance. He doesn't require of them all kinds of work to make up to them, to God, what, for what they did wrong. He doesn't give them a list of prayers or a book to read or tasks to accomplish. He gives them what they need. He gives them the resources that they require. This is such an awesome illustration of grace. God giving man what is needed. They didn't earn these new clothes. In fact, they just earned the shame that made them naked. They caused the need for clothes. Yet God gives them what they need anyway. He has not been a mean God in the Old Testament and a kind and loving God in the New Testament. That's an idea that has floated out there for centuries and, in fact, millennia. One of the first um, uh, heresies that hit the church in the first couple hundred years of church history was this heresy that said, well, the God of the Old Testament is a different God than, the God, than Jesus and the, and the Father who sent Jesus in the New Testament. And it was this, this crazy heresy. And they said they couldn't wrap their mind about how mean God appeared in the Old Testament versus how kind and loving he appears in the New Testament. But when I read that and I hear that, I find it so offensive and I think maybe you guys too do too because God is not mean in the Old Testament. He brings the truth into people's lives, but everything he does is long-suffering. And he's providing and he's constantly loving. He's constantly coming after Adam. If he was the mean God, he would have just cut Adam off right there, killed everyone, and none of us would exist. But no, God is loving. He's always loving, yet he has to have consequences for sin. There has to be consequences for sin. That's what sin brings into a life. But we saw with those curses, and, and when we studied curses two weeks ago, we learned that he never brought a curse that Jesus was not willing to take upon himself, did he? He didn't bring any curses that Jesus wasn't himself willing to endure for us because of his love for us. So as we've um, been looking at this, and now we see God, he is providing, he's being gracious, yet truthful. He didn't, he didn't tell them, oh, boys will be boys, Adams will be Adams, Eve, come on. He didn't make light of anything they did. He was brokenhearted, but yet he was loving. He's truth in love, which is exactly what it says in John chapter 1 that Jesus brought, doesn't it? Jesus brought the truth in love, grace and truth. Man, it's, it, it all makes sense. It all just goes together. So how does God choose to provide these coverings, these tunics, it says? Well, he kills an animal. A life had to be sacrificed. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, a poor, innocent animal had to die. So our friend, Fluffy the Lamb, has he been running around in your brain? You guys remember? You guys are in love with him now, right? 
All right, well, let's, let's imagine this situation, what Adam and Eve and the Lord are going through right now, okay? Adam had just named the animals. He, he felt a connection with them. He gave them their names. He felt a, a responsibility for them. The Lord said, you're in, you're in charge of these animals. Go and, and name them and take care of them and subdue the earth. This was God, God putting a connection with Adam with these animals. And so I bet Adam had a lamb named Fluffy. If it was me, I, of course, would have picked my favorite animal, the hippopotamus. But back then, hippopotamuses were covered with cotton candy. That's why I would have picked him. My favorite, I do love hippopotamus, and that would have been my pet. But Adam picked a lamb because they're cute and fluffy, and he named this lamb Fluffy. And he loved this lamb. In fact, this lamb was like his little dog. The dogs were crazy at this time, and so right now he had a lamb. And the lamb would come and would, would sleep with him in his bed and would just snuggle up to him. And he had a real close love and relationship with this lamb. This is what I think was going on, okay? And, and he felt like he took care of this lamb. He would lead him to maybe some, where the good grass was there in the garden. And, and, and then the whole thing with the tree and the fruit and his wife and Adam decides to sin. And he might be thinking, oh, well, at least I get to go home and my lamb will come and lay his little chin on my knee and I'll get to pet him and everything will be okay there. I'll at least have that relationship, right? The comfort maybe a dog or a cat brings into your life today. But then imagine the horror and the guilt, maybe the, the terrible feelings inside that Adam would have watching God take his animal, take his lamb, and slaughter it right in front of him, killing it, pouring out its blood, and, and then somehow fashioning a suit for Adam. And he says, Adam, put this on. You're naked, you've got a problem, you've sinned, you've you got shame, and you're guilty, put this on. It'll cover it up. It'll cover it up. And I bet Adam had just this hugely... Uh, just a, a terrible con confliction. That's not even a word. He was conflicted inside. What is going on? And, and as he put it on, he remembered that that lamb was alive and now it is dead because of me. It had a life. It had a joy. It had fluffiness. And now it just covers up my nakedness my shame. Imagine what he went through. He makes clothes out of this lamb. This illustrates for them the principle of blood covering sin. It would have been a very powerful illustration and probably the most powerful illustration I can think of because Adam had to put this on every day. He had to put on that tunic every single day and he would remember the life that it had before. And every time someone said, hey, where'd you get that suit? Are you wearing Armani today? I'd say, no, I'm wearing Yahweh. Designed by God. But he would have to say that God killed an innocent animal 
to provide this covering. And every time they slipped it on, they would think of the life they had before and the sin and shame that changed everything, remembering what they lost. And they would think of the way God gave them grace, even though they don't deserve it, even though they didn't deserve it, and they would never be the same because of this sacrifice. The fact that we wear clothes today should be a constant reminder of God's amazing grace on our behalf, that he covers us. Every time we see an animal, we can remember how the innocent die for the guilty. They shouldn't have died. Fluffy shouldn't have died. But because of sin, he did. Just like Jesus, who we all know is called the Lamb of God, the innocent dying for the guilty. In 1 Peter 1.18, it says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So here in Genesis, we have yet another illustration and picture of Jesus with the animal that was killed to cover up Adam and Eve's nakedness. And remember what we learned about the blood at the beginning of this study, that it represents and illustrates life. Animal animal sacrifices could only deal with the punishment of sin. They could only cover it for a time. They could never take away sin or guilt. Adam was still naked underneath the covering, wasn't he? He was still shameful. It couldn't ever take that away because the problem isn't on our outsides. The clothes only cover the outsides. The problem isn't on our outsides. It's on the inside. We have a blood disease. Our very life has been corrupted and there is no medicine that can fix this blood disease. What do they do when someone needs new blood? When they have leukemia or or some sort of blood disease, they give them a transfusion. They give them someone else's blood and they put it inside of you. So turn with me to Romans chapter 5 and I want you to see this awesome correlation that comes in Romans chapter 5, right there at the beginning. In chapter 5, verse 5. It says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Now, believe it or not, this is describing the very spiritual blood transfusion that we receive when we come to believe in Jesus. That word poured out in the Greek is a very interesting word that he used there because it's a word that generally refers to the pouring out of blood. When they would sacrifice an animal and the blood would pour out, that's the word that's used here. So it refers to blood. And where does this blood go? It says, poured out into our what? Our hearts. What do our hearts do? They pump the blood. And so what we see here is our own spiritual blood transfusion. Our blood had a disease called sin. But Jesus, in his grace, is willing and able to pour new blood into our hearts to fix the blood 
disease of sin that's going on inside us. It's, it's not just a covering on the outside. It's a change of life on the inside. A true solution for the sin of Adam and Eve would come thousands of years later when Jesus died on the cross. Not just a lack of penalty. Jesus isn't just taking care of the penalty. He did take care of the penalty, and God said he'd be faithful to do that. But that's more than that. He takes care of the internal life that earned that penalty. He, he changes the inside. Jesus offers his blood and life in exchange for ours. But this is where Jesus gets a little bit weird. So turn with me to John chapter 6. And we're going to see Jesus just say something that blew the minds of the people. Remember, the Jews said no vampires allowed, right? No vampires. You can't be drinking blood. You can't be eating blood. Blood transfusions are questionable. We don't even know about this, but we look in John chapter 6, verse 53, and it says, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. But the Jews were never supposed to eat blood. But now Jesus comes along and says, if you don't, you're going to go to hell. If you don't, you're going to go to hell. What is Jesus talking about? Because we have no access to his actual blood and body. Even if we thought that that's what he meant, that we needed to be vampires and cannibals and eat him, we don't have the ability to do that. It's all gone. So, what is he talking about? Well, it's always best to let the Bible tell you what it's talking about, especially if it's confusing. So we just keep reading. The next verse, verse 55 and 56 and 7 and 8, tell us what this is talking about. He says, my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Let me explain. Verse 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And this kind of weirded me out for a while when I used to think about communion and, and hear the term, eat my flesh and drink my blood. I was like, what is Jesus talking about? This is weird. I don't know what this is all about. But he says here, he explains it, and he says, this is simply about abiding in me and I in him. Abiding is a word for relationship, for remaining, hanging out with. In verse 57, as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. So what Jesus is talking about is relationship. He says, my father was alive, and that's how I'm alive. We have the closest relationship you could ever imagine. It's like the best relationship. He's my father. I have anything I want. I could ask him for anything, and he'd give it to me. And he says, if you hang out with me, and if you abide in me, remain with me, you'll have that same relationship. And I'll send my spirit into you, and you can cry out, Abba, Father, and you can ask whatever you want, and it'll be done for you. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's relationship. This eating blood and drinking, it's all about relationship. Where we trust him for his grace, his life, and he gives us his grace and his life. 
He doesn't expect us to source our own life from ourselves. He expects us and commands us to receive our life from him. He does not expect a relationship based on what we have done or what we can do for him, but on learning and growing what he did for us. That's what feeding on him is. What have you done? What did you do? I'm going to meditate on that. I'm going to take that in and let it be part of me. I'm going to feed on it. We just feed on him. All that he is and provides, all that he gives. We use the word grace to just cover all of this that we're describing here, but it's so much bigger than that one word. For all eternity, we will be learning his grace. It literally says, in the ages to come, we're going to be doing nothing but exploring the riches of his grace, just how much he has given to us. This is the true glorious wonder of Christianity. We get everything God could give, and none of us did or do anything to deserve it. But it's poured out in us nonetheless. Even though we don't deserve it, he says in Romans 5.5, God, your hope is not in vain because God will pour it all out inside you because he loves you. He cares so much for you. He is a God of love and a God of grace. So back in Genesis... Our story continues. God graciously covers their sin. He graciously gives an innocent life, takes an innocent life for the people, the man that he loves. He does that. And then he says, the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So this is actually an act of mercy from God. It was an act of protection. He knew that he had the disease, that sin disease. And he knew the sin was in the heart, in the blood. And now Adam's heart was pumping this blood that was just infected. And so if Adam were to take and eat of the tree of life, he would be forever stuck in a state of internal shame. He would be saying, he'd be basically a zombie, forever subject to the curses but for, and forever dying but not able to die. It would be crazy. His body would not pass away, but it would continue to decay because the curse doesn't go away until death comes, until God can bring resurrection. So this tree of life. Why is it such a big deal? Well, we actually see it again. And if you go all the way to the book of Revelation, we see it in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, up in heaven. And that when there's a new Jerusalem and God creates a new heaven and new earth, and, and this tree is there. It says the tree of life is there, and people can just go and eat of it anytime they want. Why? Because that sin disease has been totally taken care of. We have complete access to all the life and joy that God has in the tree of life. It's awesome. So why do we have to wait? You and I have been forgiven, right? We've, we've asked Jesus to forgive us. We have, we have, we've been cleansed. We are no longer have that guilt inside. So why do we have to wait? Why does he hide it up in heaven right now? Why is the tree of life up there? And I think it's because there are no shortcuts. You can't have the blessings of life without the sacrifice of Jesus first. In other words, you can't have the blessings of heaven 
by the efforts of earth, of man. Many people want the external circumstances of their life to be fixed without humbling themselves before God and trusting him. They want to eat of the tree of life before eating of the, li- of the flesh and blood of Jesus. That's what Jesus said. I, want, I don't want you to focus on eating of the tree of life right now. I want you to focus on eating me, the flesh and blood. You can't get there without this first. There's no shortcuts. The blessings of heaven will come in their time, but they will only come If you're feasting on me, through me, I am the door, Jesus said. I am the way. It only is through Jesus. We need to concern ourselves only with abiding in him, not with seeking the blessings that are going to come. The blessings are going to come. We are going to rock. It is going to be awesome. But we don't seek those things. We seek Jesus only. We only concern ourselves with abiding in him, eating his flesh and blood, remembering his sacrifice and provisions for us. Not just seeking those blessings of happiness and blessings. And as we connect with Jesus, we end up getting all these blessings anyway. We end up getting happiness. We end up getting peace and wisdom, depth of life and quality of experience. All those come as we concern ourselves at the table of the Lord remembering what he's done for us, trusting what he did and not what we do. I have so many times when I'm counseling people or people call in the radio and they're like, I just want my life to be fixed. So I'm I'm out there and I'm trying so hard. I want my marriage to be fixed. I'm working so hard at it. And I, I really try gently to move them away from seeking the blessings and to just feeding on Jesus. But Jesus is going to bring those blessings. But it doesn't happen without the the Jesus part first. He wants us concerned with him and just that relationship, that abiding first. And then the blessings come. So he drove out the man and he placed a cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So this is a very interesting thing because cherubim in the Bible are linked to the presence of God. In Ezekiel, in Isaiah, and in Revelation, we see that they're always present wherever the Lord is, wherever the Lord's presence is. So we see that on earth, when we see them on earth, every time they show up, they represent a meeting place with God, a, a place set up, for man to meet with God. There's always these cherubim that show up, which is, which is really interesting. And let me read to you in Exodus chapter 25. In Exodus 25, the, the Lord is giving instructions on building the tabernacle and the specifically the Ark of the Covenant. And he says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. That means the top, the lid of the Ark, which was this box. And inside the box was... Moses' rod that had budded and some of the manna that the children of Israel ate. And this box was there and it was to represent their relationship with God, their covenant with God. And he said, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Why cherubim? Because they represent when we meet with God. 
And he said, this is where you meet with God, Moses. This is where the children of Israel are going to meet with God, is right here between the two cherubim that are on this lid. And what's it called? The mercy seat. The mercy seat where God would have mercy. That's the type of relationship God wants with us. He wants to show mercy. And every year they would take blood and they would have their animal sacrifice and they would take the blood and they'd dip the hyssop in it and they'd sprinkle it on what? The mercy seat. And then once a year, the high priest could come to the mercy seat and he could ask for the Lord's mercy and the Lord's relationship and he could pray for all the people and that's how they had interaction and relationship with the Lord, was right there where the cherubim were. Make one cherubim at one end and the other at the other end, and you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering this mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another, and the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and the and in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there, will, there I will meet with you. And I will speak with you, God says, from above the mercy seat, between the two, two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Wow. God said, I want a meeting place. And my meeting places, cherubim are always hanging out. That's, I even want you to build it. I want you to put cherubim there so that you know you're meeting with me. And it's really crazy that when Jesus rose from the dead, after he had poured his blood on the spiritual mercy seat, when the women went in the tomb, what did they see? They saw an angel at the head and an angel at the foot of where he laid. Whoa. That just blows my mind. Awesome. Wow, how God's word lines up is so amazing. It's funny that any angel of the lowest rank could have dealt with Adam. And the flaming sword was pointed against Satan to keep him from destroying the way to access to the altar which God had set up. That's a quote from Barnhouse. Henry Barnhouse is a great theologian. So showing that God is committed to having a relationship with us. God set up a place to still meet with Adam, to still meet with Adam and Eve. He, he wasn't kicking them out of his presence forever. He still wanted a place to meet, and the cherubim, guess what? Represented and protected the place. His sword was flaming and going all over the place, but it wasn't to kill Adam. It was to keep Satan from destroying the place that God had set up. You know, God is so committed to this relationship, he would literally go to the grave to make a way for us to get back to him, even though we were the ones who broke up with him. He's guarding the way to the tree of life, not to keep the people from it, but to get them to it at the right time, to protect the way to it. In 2 Thessalonians 3.3, it says, The Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. God is protecting you. Maybe that's why you didn't get that job, because God is protecting you. He knows that if you got that job, you would trust in your job, you trust in your own efforts, and you would no longer rely upon him. Maybe that's why you got sick. What? Maybe God is protecting you. 
Because if you were healthy, you would have done something stupid and then your life would be ruined and your kids' lives would be ruined too. We never know. We don't know what it is that God is protecting us from, but we can trust that he is protecting us. When we come to the altar and we're coming to a meeting place with God, it's a way for your life to be guarded from the attacks of the enemy. Because what's with the altar? His cherubim. What are his cherubim doing? They're protecting. You want your life protected? Stay close to God. Stay meeting with him. You don't want the enemy to just have free shots at you? Stay close to him. I sometimes see, see people and they're dabbling in things that they shouldn't be dabbling with. And I'm like, what are you doing? Why aren't you at church? Oh, I'm just into this. Or I'm just, uh, just I don't got to be there. I'm under grace, not law. Guys, you're just putting yourself out there for Satan to attack you. Get to the altar. I know his angels are here right now protecting us. Why? Because we're meeting with God. And his angels are protecting those people who meet with God. And then people are out there in the world and they're dabbling. And what happens to their life? Satan just is like, ah, and gets them. And they're like, why did this happen? Why did God let me happen? And he's like, I was right here. You could have been where the angels were protecting. But no, you made your choice. Stay close to the Lord. Meet with him. Let it be all the time. He's promised to protect us if we stay by the altar. The old, in the Old Testament, people would hold on to the horns of the altar when they needed protection. So check this out, okay? On the altar, in the, in the tabernacle, there was an altar, okay? And it had, would have these horns on the corner, and people would go in. And in 1 Kings chapter 2, Joab was in trouble. Check out this story. Solomon had just become king, and Joab had picked the wrong side. He'd picked the other son of David. It was not good. He had killed some innocent people, and he was under the death penalty now that Solomon was bringing justice, and Solomon was taking over the kingdom, all right? So Joab ran to the temple of the Lord, and he took hold of the altar to try to save himself, to try to say that he was sorry. Like, hey, picked the wrong team here. I understand that you're going to be the king now, Solomon. So I'm coming in and I, I want to be protected by the altar. But Solomon had him killed there anyway. So what does that story have to do with God's protection? Because it seems like it's a story of someone who wasn't protected from their mistakes. So what does that have to do with God's protection? Well, there's two lessons for us today in it, okay? First of all, outward actions don't mean anything if it's fake. For many people, they think they're under God's protection if they keep the sacraments, the rules, if they go to church, if, if they're religious or they pray sincerely or they read the Bible or even if they're pastors, or if they think they go to a good church. Or they even think, I have sound doctrine. I'm going to read a quote from Spurgeon for you. Whatever you depend on, apart from the blood and righteousness of Christ, away with it. Away with it. If you are even depending on your own repentance and your faith, away with them. If you are looking to your own prayers or alms, I can only cry again, away with them. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the atoning sacrifice. But if you come and lay your hand upon that, blessed you shall be. 
Spurgeon. So the first lesson is it can't be about you at all. Coming to the altar, meeting with God cannot be, I want to get something out of this. Or I want to be protected. It's got to be about, do you care about God? Do you love him? Do you care about the wrongs that you've done and are you repenting? Or do you still want to come and be like, I haven't done that much wrong. Yeah, I want to be a church, but I don't care about being right with God. And God's saying there's no protection at the altar if it's fake. If you're here and you're fake, God said there's no protection. The enemy can come right in and he can rip you off because there's no protection there. The protection is in real relationship by the blood. How is there real relationship? Blood. Have you been eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus? Have you had that real relationship where you trust in what he's done on the cross? Or are you just here? Number two lesson. There is a spiritual altar that if we cling to, we will be safe and saved from every evil. We lay hold of the altar of Jesus with our hands of faith. There is true salvation for all who fully commit to the Lord. Even when the call comes to let go and follow me uh, from some distraction, you know, we still, we still push in. We, we, we care about our relationship with God. If we say, nope, I'd rather die than leave this relationship with God, we will have our protection. You know, some people are hanging there at the altar and then the calls come and they say, you don't need to be that into church. You don't need to be that into Jesus. You have to have a job. You have to care about this world. You're living in this world, aren't you? You, you got your family. You got other things and all these things and they're calls away from, from Jesus. But if we say, no, I would rather die than leave this altar, leave this place where I meet with God, then we will have our relationship we got to commit to this relationship, eating his body and his blood, abiding in him. We don't listen to the calls of the enemy to come away from it. Because I bet there's all kinds of people that say, Joab, come over here, come hide over here. Or if we were the ones there, people that would say, you don't need that altar. You don't need that meeting place. You don't need church. But when we commit to it and we say, all I need is church. All I need is Jesus in my life. All I need is to feast upon him daily. You will have your protection. There's a great hymn that says, If I must die, here I will die. Here at the cross I bide. To whom or whether, whither shall I fly? Where else can I confide? There's nowhere else for us. We will be at church. We will be in the word because it's real. Because we're not fake. And again, 1 Peter 1, we already referenced it once today. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or without spot. That's what, why we stay even when it's difficult, even when everyone is calling us away, even when our own flesh is like, why do you go to church? Why do you spend that time? That's a waste of time. 
Knowing when our spirit says it's not a waste because I'm spending, I'm meeting with the Lord. I'm holding on to the altar for dear life. And there's nothing else to me that matters except Jesus. That's where life will be a blessing. And that's where his blessings will be pouring out upon us. So we're going to go ahead and all stand up now. And we're going to close our, our time together praying and singing a song. So Jesus, we do come to you and, and desire to have that meeting place with you. And we hold on to the horns of the altar, those horns that speak of the strength. God, you are so strong. And when we hang on to you, when we put our hands of faith and reach them out and hold on to you and our close relationship with you, and we partake of your body and blood, and we remember what you've done for us, and we depend on what you've done for us, we throw ourselves before your mercy, God, you bring such protection into our lives, such peace, such victory is found in you, God. And we thank you so, so much that you would be the loving God of the Old Testament and the loving Father of the New. That you give us access to your provisions like you foreshadowed with the lamb, with the animal killed in the, in the book of Genesis. And then you not only foreshadowed it, but you completed it, sending your own son as a lamb killed for us, Jesus. And there's no way that we deserve that. There's no way, Lord, that we could thank you enough. But Lord, we can hang on. We can continue to believe. We can reach out our arms of faith and grab hold of you and believe and trust, Lord, that you, you will do this for us. That if you did it for Adam and Eve, and you did it for everyone in the Old Testament who called upon your name, that you do it for us. And if today is a day where you have, have been either wandering or, or just struggling, and you want to come back to Jesus in renewed commitment, then I invite you to do that and just say, Lord, I need you so much. I'm sorry for being out there, but Lord, I run to your altar in sincerity, I'm not fake. I want you, God. And I trust nothing else but you alone. It's real, and you're my only hope. I have nothing else besides you. And if today is the day that you have first, are first coming to realize that you're outside of God's family, then I invite you to Begin a relationship with God that is based upon the exact same thing. Coming to him and saying, God, I need you. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. Jesus, you were the blood sacrifice for me. And I believe that you'll pour your spirit into my heart if I ask. Oh, Lord, I ask. Please fill me. Please forgive me. Because, Jesus, of what you've done. And I will live my life hanging on your altar committed to my relationship with you, feasting on you, Jesus, remembering all that you have done and speaking with you about every part of my life, surrendering it all to you, Jesus, not having one thing held back, but all completely surrendered to you. 
And as we pray these things, we have God's assurance that he saves us and he will do for us what we ask. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.